Hey everybody, this is Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira. How is everyone doing out there? When I said July was a crazy month for me, I was not kidding. I've uh, been taking care of a lot of life stuff that just came up, and uh, I know I keep saying this, but I am attempting to get back on a more regular recording schedule as the dust settles, so thank you for continuing to listen. But I do have some cool stuff in the works for you guys, especially as we roll up on the most wonderful time of the year, October. But in the meantime, G is for geriatric, and I have a couple of cases for you that involve senior citizens carrying out horrifying acts of murder. Murder. There's the case of Ray and Faye, Faye and Ray Copeland, on a farm where drifters thought they were possibly getting another chance in life, but it was quite the opposite. And Tamara Samsonova, a Russian granny who killed with supernatural intent for 20 years. Ray Copeland was born December 30th, 1914, in Oklahoma. While growing up, his family moved around a lot during the Great Depression, and like a lot of families, they were having a pretty rough go at it. In his efforts to survive, he got involved in a life of petty crime, forging checks and stealing livestock. He was eventually caught and ended up serving a year in jail, which, from what I've heard, the whole like stealing livestock thing is pretty common back then. That's how a lot of people made money that couldn't really find jobs. But he served time for it and was released in 1940 at the age of 26. And this is when he met Faye Wilson, who was born August 4th, 1921, and she was 19 years old at the time. They got married pretty soon after. They had several children in pretty quick succession. They had five children altogether. They were pretty poor. One of his sons said that the only shoes that they ever really had were school shoes. And most of the time, farm work was done barefoot. While money was tight, they moved around a lot, partly thanks to Ray's criminal reputation. Ray would serve several jail sentences, and he finally made a plan to continue his illegal money-making ventures without being caught. They settled in Mooresville, Missouri on a farm. They were known in the community as being pretty shy and to themselves. Faye made money as a factory worker and later as a hotel maid. Ray was a cattle rancher, but he was also known as a fraudster, so he couldn't exactly buy cattle himself. Nobody really trusted him to sell their cattle to him. He also couldn't really read or write, so he needed someone who could write checks for him. Once his children had all moved out to pursue their own lives, he also needed help on the farm. He would pick up drifters and homeless men from the local mission um, and hire them as farmhands on his property in Mooresville. He would offer them $50 a day, plus they would have, you know, a place to stay. He would also make the promise of helping them start accounts and get their finances started. And this was understandably pretty hard to pass up for these men. He would take them to market and have them buy the cattle with bad checks. And after purchasing them, he would resell them quickly and the farmhands would just disappear. This was working for a while until he got caught and was sent to jail again. After he was released, he continued this illegal activity, but this time he made sure that the men he was hiring weren't as easily traced back to him. 
a man named Dennis Murphy had disappeared and was wanted in connection to check fraud at the auction. Ray was actually questioned about this in 1986, and he said that Dennis had just taken off in the middle of the night. Uh, yes, he had stayed there, but he just ran off, and that he had also received a bad check from Dennis and was basically saying that he was a thief, he was known to do this, I had nothing to do with it, he's just, you know, a fraudster. And there were seven others wanted in connection to the cattle auction fraud that couldn't be located. Ray's plan worked until a former employee, Jack McCormick, called the Crime Stoppers hotline in August of 1989. Jack said that Ray had given him money to start an account and told him to use a P.O. box as an address. One day, Ray brought Jack down into a barn where there was supposedly a raccoon in a hole that he wanted Jack to scare out so he could shoot it. Jack said that he immediately had an uneasy feeling and just didn't want to take his eyes off of Ray. He said that he looked up quickly and he had the gun pointed at him and he somehow, you know, he freaked out. He somehow convinced Ray not to shoot him and he took off. He fled Missouri to Nebraska and ended up keeping quiet for about five months. This is when Jack reported that he had seen human bones, including a skull, on the farm during his employment there and claimed that Ray had tried to kill him. Police were hesitant at first to believe this man, Jack, but decided to investigate after looking into Ray's criminal background. In October of 1989, the police showed up at the Copeland farm with a search warrant as well as a team of bloodhounds and officers, about half a dozen officers, I think. The Copeland's land spanned 40 acres, including barns, ponds, and woods, and searches went on for nine days with no success. So this is when they brought Jack out to the scene and asked if he could just show them where he had seen these bones, and maybe that would make their search a little bit easier. And this is when Jack says, uh, you know, well, he didn't actually see anything. Like, it looked like a skull, but it could have been a plate or something. I don't think I actually saw any bones, was basically what he said. And everything seemed pretty normal on the farm until they started investigating a barn on a property nearby where Ray would work for extra money. It was here that they found the bodies of three men wrapped in sheets and buried. They looked to have been there for about two to three years. Continuing their search in another barn nearby, they removed hundreds of bales of hay, and under the floorboards, there were more bodies. Six weeks later, police found another body in a nearby well, and the body was wearing a belt with a buckle that said D-E-N-N-I-S. And this was later confirmed to actually be Dennis Murphy. All of the men had been killed with a 22 caliber Marlin rifle, which they actually ended up finding in the Copeland's home. Also found in the home were many suitcases, shoes, and piles of clothing that didn't belong to either Ray or Faye and didn't fit them. Uh, I also found a lot of reports that said that Faye had actually made quilts using some of the victim's clothing. Um, I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is, but I did find... You know, about half the things I read uh, had that in there, so I, I don't put it past them. Hidden in a camera case was a list of men that Ray had hired. The names of the men that were wanted for check fraud were marked with an X next to their names. 
Skulls were taken to forensic odontologist Robert Geyer, who examined and x-rayed the skulls, creating a post-mortem dental chart for the victims that he would then compare to pre-mortem dental records of the eight men wanted for fraud. In some cases, this was difficult due to some of the men having been drifters and not having super like current, up-to-date dental work. There were also cases where some of the skulls were missing a lot of teeth and they had to rely a lot on bone formation to match. They were able to match the five bodies with the names of the men that were wanted for cattle fraud, four of which corresponded with the four names marked with an X on the list found in Ray's home. So Ray had obviously killed his employees in the name of money, but there was the question of Faye's involvement. Faye claimed that she had no clue about it and didn't see any reason that Ray would even do this. The handwriting on a letter she wrote to Ray in prison was analyzed and matched the handwriting on the list of names found in the camera case. Remember that Ray couldn't read or write and needed someone to write these things down for him, but Faye said that she wrote the list, but she didn't know what it was for and that there was no point in asking because he would have most likely gotten physically violent with her. As for the claims of Ray being violent, no one really knew about it outside the family, and Faye mentioned in an interview that she was raised to stay with who you married and the man was the boss. But these claims were also backed up by one of Ray's sons, saying that getting hit with a pan or farm equipment wasn't a rare occurrence if they had talked back or had been just doing a task incorrectly, like milking the cows. Faye went on trial in November of 1990. Her defense painted the picture of her being a good wife and mother who had suffered abuse from her husband. But the jury found her guilty on four counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. The four murder charges got her four death sentences, and the one count of manslaughter got her life without parole. Ray was on trial in March of 91 and was convicted on five counts of murder and sentenced to death. When he heard that Faye had also been sentenced to death, he didn't really show any emotion and just said, quote, Well, those things happen to some, you know, end quote. But neither of these death sentences would ever be carried out. Ray died of natural causes on October 19, 1993, and was cremated after his death. Faye's attorneys appealed her conviction, stating that the jury had not been allowed to take into account that Faye had suffered abuse from Ray for years, and on August 6, 1999, her death sentence was overturned, but her convictions still stood, and her sentence was commuted to five consecutive life terms without parole. Up until this point, Faye was the oldest woman on death row. Faye suffered a stroke on August 10, 2002, that left her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. A few weeks later, in September, medical parole was authorized for Faye to grant her one wish that she didn't want to die in prison. She was paroled to a nursing home in her hometown of Chillicothe, Missouri, where she died of natural causes at 82 years old. And the Copeland story has also been fictionalized in a comic book, Family Bones, written by Faye's nephew, Sean Granger. So if anyone has read that, let me know how it is. I'm sure I'll read it at some point because that sounds fascinating. But yeah, that is an absolutely terrifying case. And I actually tried finding pictures of this quilt that people kept saying, or articles kept saying that she had made out of the clothing, and I, 
I couldn't find any photographic evidence of it, but if I ever stumble across it, I'll let you know. Now we get into the case of Tamara Samsonova, who was born April 25th, 1947, in the city of Yuzer, which is now a part of Krasnoy Arkhai in uh, Russia. After graduating from high school, she arrived in Moscow and entered the Moscow State Linguistic University. After graduating, she moved to St. Petersburg, where she married Alexei Samsonova. And in 1971, she and her husband settled in the newly built house number four on Dimitrov Street. For some time, about 16 years, she worked for an tourist travel agency in the Grand Hotel Europe. So everything sounds normal, right? Well, Tamara's husband was reported missing in 2005, and actually to this day he's never been found. Nobody knows his whereabouts at all. She did appeal to police, but they never found anything on any of their searches. And after her husband's disappearance, Samsonova began renting out a room in her apartment where she had had a few tenants. In March 2015, Samsonova met 79-year-old Valentina Yulanova, who also lived on Dimitrov Street. A friend of the two had asked Yulanova to shelter Samsonova for a time due to her the fact that her... um. Her apartment was being renovated, to which Yulanova agreed, and Samsonova lived in her apartment for several months, helping her with housework. She actually became a, like, caregiver of sorts to her. She really liked living in the apartment, and she wanted to stay there for longer, and she basically, like, refused to move out, which caused a bit of tension between the two. And over time, the relationship between the two deteriorated. And Yulanova eventually asked Tamara to move out. Then one day, after another conflict over some dirty dishes, Tamara decided to poison Yulanova. She traveled to Pushkin, where she managed to persuade a pharmacist to sell her a prescription drug, Phenazepam. Upon returning, she bought a... It was a salad that was one of... Yulanova's like favorite salads and then she put the pills in the salad and gave it to her. Samsonova later found Yulanova's body lying on the kitchen floor on the night of July 23rd and proceeded to dismember it with two knives and a saw while she was still alive. She first sawed off her head and then she sawed the body in half and using the knives she kind of sheared it into pieces. To take out all of the bags from the apartment, she had to go outside and return several times. And Samsonova left other parts of the body kind of just in the house. On the evening of July 26, Yulanova's decapitated body with several limbs wrapped in a bathroom curtain was found near a pond located somewhere near house number 10 on Dimitrov Street. It had been there for several days until a local couple was walking their dog and noticed the bundle, and I think their dog was kind of like, you know, trying to get to it and took an interest in it, and so they looked inside of it and realized what the contents were. The identity of who this person was was established on July 27th after a survey of apartment residents. When they knocked on Yulanova's apartment, Samsonova opened the door to the police. Once inside, police officers found traces of blood in the bathroom and part of the torn curtain that her body parts had been wrapped in. They also found a large kitchen knife 
which like from reports I read, they said that it was somehow like pretty obvious that it had been used as a murder weapon. And after this, Tamara was immediately arrested. There was video surveillance about two days before the body was discovered of Tamara disposing of a cooking pot that most reports I found said contained Yulanova's head and lungs. It was either that or it was um, they were used to like cook her head and lungs. And she was also caught on the CCTV dragging bags out of the apartment building. A lot of what I found said that Tamara almost always cut the lungs out of her victims, and it's highly suspected that she was eating them. She had a she just had a thing for eating lungs, um, and there might also be a reason for that, which I will get to in just a second. Um, she also always decapitated them and dismembered their bodies. In her bedroom, investigators found books on astrology and black magic, as well as a diary detailing many gruesome cannibalistic murders dating back as far as 20 years before. These entries were in fluent Russian, German, and English, which was kind of confusing to investigators. One entry translated from Russian to English, and it read, I killed my tenant Volodya cut him to pieces in the bathroom with a knife and put the pieces of his body in a plastic bag and threw them away in different parts of Frenzinski district. This entry matched the case of a missing 44-year-old man whose torso was found in 2003, as stated in her diary. He actually was a tenant of hers for a short time. The case had went cold after they had really no leads as to who may have killed him. The man also had a distinct tattoo, which was mentioned in Tamara's diary, and there were some belongings of his, including a business card, found in her bedroom. Pages from her black magic books were missing, and it was determined that those exact pages were ones that they had found in this, like, in the bag with this man's remains. There's been times when they've basically kind of refused to release a, like, a big chunk of the diary or like they just haven't really disclosed everything that was inside it to the public but I mean obviously there was some kind of like motives for like magic rituals um not every report I read said this but I did find some claims that like body parts had had like symbols carved into them and stuff um or like some of the ones that were like found in her apartment so not sure how true that statement is, but I did find some reports that also said that. But, I mean, obviously just judging by the pages, the spell pages found with this guy's remains, like, there's obviously a, uh, the motive of, like, a, of magic ritual in there. During her hearings, she wasn't shy at all about confessing to her crimes and confessed to at least, uh, 11 additional murders. She said that she agreed that she would spend, she should spend the rest of her life in prison and also told police that Valentina had been her last killing um, and that she had kind of knew that this closed the chapter um, of her serial killing and that they would have been coming for her at some point. Tamara was so confident in the courtroom, she was asked to address the reporters and she blew them a kiss. It's suspected that Tamara's body count is at least 14, with the possibility of more. There have been many investigations um, into some unsolved murders that had a similar kind of 
uh, MO to them and the way the bodies were found. So um, it's suspected that she's killed at least 13 and with, you know, probably more uh, attributed to her. She is referred to as Granny Ball Lecter and the Granny Ripper in, you know, the Western uh, area of the world and Baba Yaga in Russia. It is a truly terrifying metaphysical granny that sounds like it came straight out of Russian lore. And there you have it. I mean, sometimes your golden years involve murdering your tenants, apparently. I don't know, man. Uh, but drop me a line over on Instagram. I'll put the handle in the description for this episode. And thanks for listening, and I will see you guys next time for the letter H. Thank you.